0: Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode, Richard Grayson talks about his book, Dublin's Great Wars, the First World War, the Easter Rising and the Irish Revolution, with moderator Rona McCreevy, recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 6th of October 2018.
1: Morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to see such a wonderful crowd so early this morning. We're both delighted. Um, my name is Ronan McGreevy, as uh, Tara explained, I'm um, the author of the book Wherever the Firing Line Extends, Ireland and the Western Front, and i have also uh, the editor of the centenary book Ireland Remembers 1916, so they're both books that are about both the First World War and the Republican period, and Richard's book, which we'll talk about anon, on, is in the same vein. Professor Richard Grayson is Professor of History at Goldsmith College in London. His father's family are from Lurgan County, Armagh. He is both a British and Irish citizen. He has a passionate interest in the history of this country. His main research interests are Ireland and the, the First World War. Uh, Richard has a long history of excavating, long pedigree of excavating Irish history and shedding new light on old stories. His book, Belfast Boys in 2009, was an attempt to tell the story of the city from those involved in the First World War, not just those from a unionist persuasion. As you would expect, but the thousands of nationalists who joined up too and were conveniently forgotten about for all kinds of obvious reasons. Dublin's Great Wars is, in some ways, I think, a companion to this book. As Richard writes in the preface, this book attempts to tell the story of the Great Wars of the revolutionary period in as complete a manner as possible, recognising the full scope of their of their service in the British Army and as Irish Republicans and the horrors they endured. So, uh, Richard. come and speak now thank
2: you thank you ronan it's a a pleasure to be here this is my second appearance at this festival and uh well the idea that at at home a a council would be organizing something like this uh is, is is something that always makes me think and it just points to the level of seriousness of engagement with uh with history and its contemporary relevances that you see here. And that's also seen in, in Ronan's work. Um, as, as a journalist, he, he's been exemplary in uh, engaging in historical study and in carrying, out, carrying it out himself. So it's a real pleasure to be in conversation with him later, and I'll look forward to that, uh, as well as to comments and questions that you may all have a little later I wanted to start just by thinking about what I might describe as a standard Dublin view of this period. Uh, Of course, this period is dominated by uh, the Easter Rising. That's understandable. It's hard to see that that changing. Uh, And that is, therefore, central to any analysis of Dublin's role in the First World War and then the uh, later uh, and parallel Irish Revolution. As regards the story of Dublin's involvement in the First World War, it has of course very much been dominated by the Dublin Pals, D Company of the Seventh Royal Dublin Fusiliers, the the rugby players who went off to war and died in large numbers at Gallipoli. I think another part of the narrative has been about post-war exclusion, and forgetting and question mark hostility of veterans, it, it's not possible to see in Dublin the the violence against directed towards veterans that you see in some other parts of the country, particularly in rural areas, simply because of their numbers. There are so many thousands of them that anybody who'd attempted any kind of orchestrated campaign of violence against Uh, Dubliners would have would have received it back and and many more times so Uh, and of course many ex-British soldiers have a crucial role in the National Army when it's formed and there's some knowledge around a few individuals and I'll say more about this later of uh, the role in the IRA that some British veterans had both in Dublin and elsewhere I think it's important also to recognise the extent to which some of these relatively simple ideas of the war have been greatly enhanced uh, since the 1990s by, for example, the uh, Irish Voices work that Miles Dungan produced in a a couple of books and also by the work uh, led by Tom Burke in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers Association, which did so much to... Uh, resurrect and document and archive the memories of Dubliners and others who served in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. So these are the the narratives on which my work would be resting but I've tried to develop those in a number of ways and also uh, to challenge them. The approach of the book uh, very much draws on the methods I used for Belfast boys. It's a study from 1912 to 23, although I also go back in the introduction to look at the uh, wider context of uh, struggles against British rule and the way they're manifested, for example, in the South African War, which uh, would also see plenty of Dubliners uh, supporting uh, the British military in that conflict. It's a study of both the British military and Republicans and the methods I used in Belfast Boys I've described as military history from the street where you start out with an area and you try to find out everybody who served. We will never quite be able to do that because of something that happened in uh, 1940 during the London Blitz when the Luftwaffe bombed the Arnside Street repository which held the records of the British Army during the First World War and around two thirds of them were destroyed. So we're always to some extent trying to fill in those gaps. But things like the service records that you can see on the left uh, were crucial to uh, uh, building up a database of uh, British soldiers and uh, things like the um, IRA pensions and witness statements which you can see on the right of the slide were crucial. I was going through all of those to build up a database. I will throw a few statistics at you first of all, just to give you some idea of the the scope. I identified in the British military uh, around 25,000 individuals who had served. That probably means that uh, due to the loss records there were at least 35,000 and I think that if you uh, account for the fact that we can't look at naval and air records in quite the same way you're getting on towards 40,000. All but 20 of those were men. The the 20 women uh, are are generally in Queen Alexandra's uh, nursing corps which is formerly part of the British Army. I identified around Six and a half thousand dead and another 600 that I would query. Uh, these are generally people who are reported as dead in the newspapers but uh, turn out later, for example, to be prisoners. And I'm always very careful not to over-inflate the figures, uh, partly with the thought of academic reviewers sitting on my shoulder and, and looking to pick holes in things. Uh, so I'm, I'm going for, for, for those numbers Uh, In addition, the Red Cross was recruiting people who were supporting the British military war effort, and there were nearly 4,000 of those, 90% of them women. Certain roles will be dominated by women, nurses, as you might expect, but there are other roles that are dominated by men. For example, a category called hospital searchers who go and visit hospitals uh, at, at or near the front to try and find missing people. They're generally men. Now, as regards uh, people serving in Republican forces, I identified uh, nearly 1,900 men who were from Dublin and and 233 women uh, from Dublin who had rising service. I went through in detail all the arrest lists, and I reckon that uh, 481 of those who were arrested... Uh, had, had not served in the rising. Now some of these certainly would have been known republicans or we might say advanced nationalists. So uh, famously Owen McNeill is, um, is arrested, having very much not played a role in the Easter Rising other than trying to prevent it. And one has to imagine that probably some of those 481 would be supporters of McNeill who, uh, who decided not to mobilise. Um, but the fact that the uh, British arrested that many with no apparent connection shows you quite how heavy handed the, um, the response to the rising was. And then of course uh, the IRA's Dublin Brigade at the Truce shows 5,500 uh, members and uh, some of those would have been from outside Dublin but they are uh, largely Dubliners. And that's a, that's a real indication of, of the scale of mobilisation in these conflicts. Within that I have a lot of data on um, recruitment rates, units, even things like tattoos which were recorded on British military records. And, and I kept a record of them. They're discussed in the book. Um, it was interesting to look at the social background of, of the people who joined up. So if you take the, uh, the ranks, the non-officers, Uh, Around a quarter of Republicans were unskilled uh, compared to around 40% in the British Army as a whole and specifically 55% in the the British Infantry Regiments. There are very marked social differences between some of the units. So for example, um, if you look at Royal Dublin Fusiliers as a whole... 10% of them in the ranks had worked in white-collar jobs before the war. But the 10th Commercial Battalion is is nearly 50% white-collar. So you're getting certain units having a very specific social uh, characteristic. Now, building on the narrative that I talked about before, I've tried to offer some new narratives, and I've divided these up into a number of areas. The first of these is the context of wider imperial uh, and uh, political conflicts. So the book begins with the, the South African War. I picked two individuals <coughs> out of that. One is um, Tom Byrne, Thomas Francis Byrne, sometimes known as as Boer Byrne, uh, who was in the Irish Transvaal Brigade. And, of course, he and the GPO uh, and his later wife, Lucy Smith, would play uh, a significant role, as would their... Uh, daughter in the centenary commemorations, uh, but you've also got a, a lot la- a for- completely forgotten Dublin, uh, among many others who I picked out, uh, Michael Tracy, who's serving with the Dublin Fusiliers in South Africa. He would play a crucial role, uh, or at least a significant role, uh, during Easter week 1916 at Hollock. He's one of those who were killed in the German gas attack there, and I felt that you'd had... What was interesting about the South African War was that it showed that there were Dubliners making decisions as far back as 1899 that were similar to the kinds of decisions that they would make uh, when it came to 1916. Dublin is a city of military traditions with a a strong tradition of service in the British military. Uh, A forgotten story about that is the naval service, and I pick out uh, Pierce Murphy. Signalman Pierce Murphy on the right, uh, a picture taken from one of the newspapers. Murphy is killed on the 5th of August 1914, which is the second day of the UK's war. Uh, and it's the first day on which there are military fatalities for British forces. And he, he's on the HMS Amphion, which is sunk. Uh, and of course, in, an, in a war that is dominated by our memory of the mud and slaughter of the Western Front, the naval War is often overlooked and it struck me as uh, relevant that, that there was a Dubliner among the very first deaths uh, of the war in the Royal Navy. The regular battalions, I think, are rather overlooked in any telling of the British Army in the war. We tend wherever you go, to focus on the volunteers, the people who joined afresh in 1914 and 15, and onwards and were in, for for Dublin, for example, the 16th Irish Division. But the men of the 1st and 2nd Dublin Fusiliers uh, played an incredibly important part in the war. The 2nd Dublin Fusiliers uh, on the Western Front in 1914 and through the entire war. No battalion of uh, the British Army would have as many Dubliners in it as the 2nd Dublin Fusiliers, And the 1st Dublins are incredibly important in April 1915 at Gallipoli. And Gallipoli tends to be remembered for the landings there in August 15 by the volunteer 10th Irish Division. Within that, of course, are the Dublin Pals. Uh, But beyond that, you have the Sixth Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Noel Drury, pictured on the left, left a very rich diary uh, which is partly online on the uh, uh, National Army Museum website. And I'm going to be editing those diaries for publication in a a couple of years. One of the things that struck me about the significance of Gallipoli for uh, Dublin people was that come the war of independence, Uh, When there is a particular area of Dublin which which sees many IRA attacks on uh, British forces, that area becomes known to locals as the Dardanelles because that's Dublin people's idea of where there is slaughter. What I can say is if if there'd been a similar area in Belfast, it would have been called the Somme. It wouldn't have been called the Dardanelles, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an indicator there of how important Gallipoli is to uh, Dublin people. I've tried to draw out the story of the Pals, uh, but I haven't forgotten the Pals, and one man in particular stood out for me, Robert Callahan. Uh, these are pictures from, his, uh, from the archives of the Royal College of Surgeons in England, because. Callaghan, having been uh, wounded at, in Macedonia as, as part of the Salonica campaign with the 7th DUBLINS, Callahan eventually becomes uh, a patient of the pioneering plastic surgeon Harold, Harold Gillies. Uh, Callahan is shot here at, uh, 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 in Macedonia. The bullet goes behind his eyes destroying the optical nerves, destroying the eyes. He loses his sight in both eyes. And um, he then undergoes a series of uh, treatments to get him uh, to how he looks and how he functions in March uh, 1922. Interestingly, uh, and I wasn't able to find more background on this, but in 1919, he married in England... Um, to, somebody who, to a woman who was the daughter of a surgeon. So I wonder if he met her uh, in England through, through his treatment. Uh, we, we might talk about him a little later, but he figures a lot, uh, in a significant way in the book because he was due a pension for his wound. Um, when he was wounded, he was captain. And so the war office paid him a captain's pension But somebody diligent, uh, that's one way of putting it, did some digging and realised when he was wounded he'd only been a captain for 10 days. And to get a captain's pension you were supposed to be a captain for 15 days. So they said he should be paid a lieutenant's pension and tried to recoup a a sum that would now be around £14,000. And they had him down as what the Daily Mail at home would call a benefit scrounger. Um, <clears throat> anyway, enough said about the Daily Mail, probably. Uh, Dublin loyalism is forgotten. And there's a, a body of Dubliners, a very ropey picture from the Dublin Evening Mail, but they're, they're, they're pictured here. There's a Dublin company of the Ninth Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. Uh, They are formed from a group that left very little in terms of paperwork but it's the loyal loyal Dublin volunteers, the LDVs. Uh, And they're a Dublin counterpart of the Ulster Volunteer Force. They're they're formed in response to the Covenant. And what this means is that the uh, uh, 1st of July 1916, very much the Ulster Divisions Day is, is a battle in which uh, Dubliners play a part and I felt it was significant to pick out that lost story of of Dublin loyalism. Somewhat better known is the story of Irish Parliamentary Party nationalism and its support for recruitment into the uh, British Army, particularly the 16th Irish Division and it's that that leads Dubliners to be taking a role on the Somme in September 1916, and the standout story there is of two men in the ninth Dublin's, both very well known. Thomas Kettle, one of the great lost thi- figures of parliamentary Irish nationalism, a former MP who's who's killed at Ginchy on the uh, 9th of September 1916. With him is a young uh, Irish nationalist, Emmett Dalton. I'll just leave that thought for the moment because I want to come back to Emmett Dalton a little bit later (coughs) I've um, picked out I've tried to offer a a new narrative of the Easter Rising This, this, this was a challenge so much brilliant work has been written on the Easter Rising but I thought it was important to try and put the Rising in the context of the First World War and I did that by, for each day of the rising, looking at how many were killed in Dublin and how many Dubliners were killed as a result of the First World War. Uh, Thursday, 27th of April, is one of the pivotal days of the rising. It's one of the uh, days in which the, the British really try and turn the screw on Republican forces. But it's also a day in which the uh, Royal Dublin Fusiliers on the Western Front at, at Hullock come under um, fire from the Germans specifically through a gas attack. So think of the devastation in, in Dublin during that day. 53 killed, uh, 15 British military, 32 civilians and 7 rebels. Uh, but Dublin's war dead is 55, uh, 51 France and Flanders, three Mesopotamia, uh, and one in Kenya, which is just an interesting footnote because it just shows how very much this was uh, a world war. Um, Beyond that, uh, a colleague made a suggestion to me that it would be interesting to see how far um, the war was operating in the minds of Dubliners during the rising was an effect on the minds of Dubliners during the rising because of the numbers serving overseas and we hear a lot of this in the in the witness statements uh, from statements from republicans about how they were spat at and jeered by the, the women described as the separation women the women who's who were either war widows or uh, who had men serving away at the front. So I just took a map and, and, and phased uh, uh, marked in the roads that were proximate to where the rising was taking place. So people who would definitely have been affected by the fighting that was going on. And I found that um, at, at 1,082 men from the roads around the rising served in the British military. And I reckon that nearly 900 of those were already serving when the Rising took place. And certainly 121 of them had already been killed before the Rising. Another 14 were killed at Hullock during the Rising. So the news would have been coming back in telegrams as the prisoners were transported around the city. And another 170 from those areas were killed later in the war. So this kind of figure, I think, just gives you a sense of how um, people who had uh, men, husbands, fathers, sons, serving in the British military would have felt about a a proclamation being made of support for gallant allies in Europe. It it brings it home, I think. Drawing to a close, I I mentioned... uh, Emmett Dalton Uh, two pictures of Dalton Uh, in the one on the left he's on the uh, front row and on the left that's a 1918 photo of the uh, second Leinsters and Dalton you can see the ribbon he'd already won the military cross which he'd won on the Somme in 1916 Dalton's family were middle class Catholic nationalists Uh, His father knew Joe Devlin, the Irish Parliamentary Party MP for West Belfast and it it was after talking to him that Dalton had decided to join the British Army in 1915. His father wasn't that happy about it. Uh, There's an account of him, of Dalton turning up home having enlisted and his father said get out, I won't have any bloody red coat in this house. But his mother said, well, you know, <laughs> calm down and it's Emmett and we've, we've, we've got to support him. And the family were nation- moderate nationalists, not uh, republicans, so uh, at least at that point. And so he goes off to war. He's with, as I say, Tom Kettle uh, when, he, um, when he died. Uh, this picture, however, well, you can see who he's with there. And that's in London where he's with uh, Michael Collins uh, helping to negotiate the uh, Anglo-Irish Treaty, if you see, f- if you find online Pathé footage of Collins coming out of Number 10 Downing Street, it's Dalton holding the door of the car. Uh, I've, there's a photo that I've I've used of, of that in the book, but um, it's it's wonderful to see that moving footage of Collins coming out of Downing Street and Dalton holding the door. Dalton had joined. Um, uh, the IRA, probably in 1919. His brother Charlie, who later wrote a memoir of uh, his time in the IRA, uh, w- was already already serving while the First World War was still going on. And Dalton brings with him an expertise uh, about the British military. Uh, he also, on a pragmatic level, brought within British army uniforms. He had two. Uh, So, for example, he's involved in an unsuccessful attempt on on Mountjoy, where um, he talks his way in. They they steal an armoured car from the British, talks his way in to try and get a a figure from the Longford IRA out. Uh, It goes wrong, but nevertheless, Dalton's ability to pose as a British officer, which of course he had been makes him something of a bogeyman for the British. And the the British take this view that whenever anything has happened that's clever, whenever there's a jail outbreak, for example, it must have been Dalton who's behind it. There is a very nice story um, that uh, a a Republican recorded in a witness statement of how Dalton and a group of other members of the IRA were were in some offices that were being used by the IRA that were raided by the British. Um, But Dalton just managed to... Uh, talk his way out of it and persuade the British soldiers that these were not IRA premises. And the Republicans said, you know, by the end of it, the British were more or less standing standing to attention uh, to Dalton. They had a laugh and a joke and went outside for a smoke. Um, During the Civil War, Dalton is absolutely crucial to the initiation of it because the guns that are used to shell the IRA in the four courts by the National Army... Uh, are secured from the British who are still in Dublin by Dalton. Later he becomes um, concerned about the execution of Republican prisoners during the Civil War and resigns from the National Army. He then uh, leads a, you know, a really colourful life afterwards. He's, he's a whiskey salesman for a while. Uh, he gets involved in film. The British try unsuccessfully to recruit him as a spy during the Second World War. Um, because he's a genius, he's a military genius in, in many ways, uh, Dalton. Has a real talent for subterfuge and a real nerve. Um, and he ends up living in Radlett in Hertfordshire, which I just found amusing because it's, it's ten, roughly 10 miles from where I live. And it's just not the kind of place that you would imagine a general in the IRA uh, having lived. But That's the kind of uh, figure that he is. And then in later years, he... Uh, he does much during the centen- sorry, the uh, 50th anniversaries in 1966, when people here want to talk about the Easter rising. He does much to say, look, remember the Somme as well. There were Irishmen dying on the Somme. So he's writing to the uh, Irish Times about that. The final man to think about is Michael McCabe. He, he's left much less of a, an impact on history or at least on the paperwork, than Emmett Dalton. But I thought his was an interesting story about crossovers between British and Republican forces. I should say that these crossover examples are quite small. Really limited numbers of people uh, who were involved in the IRA had British military experience. But there are enough of them making different choices at different times to just make me think that they're significant in helping us question about why people do the things they do at certain moments of history and how they get buffeted by the tide of history. McCabe is 15, a young member of the Irish Volunteers in 1916. He's in Rose Distillery. He's arrested by the British. They realise he's 15. They let him out of prison after a year. What does he do? Does he harbour a grudge against the British? Does he get involved in... um, Uh, Republican activities and the rebuilding of the volunteers. His father's a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. You'd think he might, wouldn't you? But no, in 1917, he joins the King's Own Royal Lancaster Regiment. He goes off to the Western Front. He's wounded in 1918. He obviously likes the British Army because he stays in. He stays in after the war until 1922. Um, He's home on leave in Dublin in April and he deserts. It's not clear why he deserts, but very soon he bumps into Liam Mellows, who who, who he'd known in the Fianna, of which he'd been a member before the Volunteers. Mellows, obviously, is uh, a leading uh, anti-treaty figure, and McCabe, for whatever reason, goes into the Four Courts. McCabe becomes a drill instructor in the anti-treaty IRA. He's captured by the Free State. Uh, He's in prison. Uh, and released, interestingly, before the general release, uh, about six or seven months before. He's, he's out at the end of, of December 23. There's no question of him at that point claiming an IRA pension because he's been in the anti-treaty forces. The Commander Gael government wouldn't have allowed him to do that. But when Fianna Foyle are in power and changed the rules, uh, he applies for an IRA pension in 1938. Um, his address is the British Royal West African Regiment. He's rejoined the British Army. Um, he writes to a friend in Dublin, because you have to get these your record witnessed by someone. Uh, you, you have to get it verified by people, but the, you have to get it witnessed by someone who, who just says that you've actually written it out. And he writes to a friend saying, I, I haven't got anyone here to witness it, I just don't think it would suit. And... Uh, his friend writes back and says there must be a priest. He says, "Yeah, they are, but they're British Army priests, you know." So I just not. So he he arranges for that to be signed in Dublin. Um, serves through the Second World War. There's a letter in 1941 where he apologises for a delay in responding to some correspondence about his IRA pension, where he's just somewhere in Abyssinia. He's fighting in Africa during the war, and he's demobbed in 1946, and then he just disappears from history uh, until his death certificate in uh, 1975. It's obviously a, uh, an Irish death certificate. He's, um, he's described as uh, single, so uh, quite possibly no children. I haven't been able to track down any descendants. Uh, retired British soldier is what he's said to be on his death certificate. Now. <laughs> Why did Michael McCabe uh, do all of this? You know, we can speculate. I think on the appeal of the Rising for a 15-year-old with a father in the IRB, um, and then we can—if if he joined the British Army for economic reasons in 1917, he'd hardly be the first Irishman to, to find that that was necessary to take the uh, the King's shilling for work. Um, and then, of course, he, he did it again. Maybe it was his personal friendship with Mellows which led him into the four courts. Who knows? But I do think he's a a a statement of the fact that people make decisions for maybe not the reasons that you that you would think. Uh, The comparison in in my mind is actually with the provisional IRA and the official IRA in the north. during the Troubles, and you would think of those as being very different bodies with very distinct political agendas, but the research that's been done into people who, who jo- you know, why did you join the officials, not the provisionals? And people say, why well, I'm not really sure, or, you know, I had a cousin in one and not the other, or it was, that was what people in my area did. So I think we just need to recognise that the, um, the reasons that people join different armies at different times... Can be very complicated, and McCabe, for me, just shows the, the, the great paradox of British-Irish relations in this time that people could, that and British and Irish soldiers could be both the worst of enemies and the best of comrades, uh, and that's a strand that I've tried to pick out in the book. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Richard, for that uh, very interesting talk. Can you, can you all hear me? Okay. Um, just looking at the numbers there, Richard, um, we to five thousand. I think you said, for those who served in the British Army, for, and for further 4,000 for the, 4, for, uh, the right who are, yeah, yeah. And then you're looking at between seven and a half, maybe at least 1,000 for those who were in
2: sort of Republican forces. Just tell us, what was the population of Dublin at this time? Um, so, at the time, it's around 200,000, I think. Uh, or is it bigger? No. Well, is, uh, it, is it nearer half a million? Yeah, well, the
1: city area itself is around 300,000. Yeah, 300,000, yeah. And then the, the actual the county, county is, is about yeah. half a million. So, it's an extraordinary amount of people to be involved in armed conflict in one small city,
2: really. It is. I, I, I think it reflects the... Uh, it reflects the... M- all-pervasive um, influence of these conflicts. They, they, this, this is a time of total war, uh, that the entire population is mobilized in different ways. The, the entire population is, uh, is affected. Um, and you've got to go just beyond those numbers because how many, this is numbers actively involved, yeah. But how many people are actually connected to somebody who's serving, almost everyone is yeah. is affected by this in in some way. It's 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 uh, these conflicts just dominate life for a decade.
1: Um, you spoke there about uh, uh, you know the different conflicts. You talked about uh, uh, Michael McCabe there. Mm. Um, I think there was some research done that there was at least hundred and seventy officers uh, uh, who were in the British Army and joined the IRA afterwards. Um, you alluded to, you know, you, we're not 100% sure why that is the reason. But a lot of them would have said at the time that they went to fight for the rights of small nations. Mm. And then when they come back to Ireland, they find that, you know, the, the Irish people vote en masse in December 1918 to, to, to leave the United Kingdom. Their request is denied. Um, is that a fair summary, do you think, of, of some... I think it's just,
2: you, you can see membership of the British Army in 1914 uh, from an Irish nationalist perspective and then joining the IRA in 1919 or later as as utterly consistent. Mm. They, they might well be motivated by the same things. I think, though, that also people had a sense that the situation had changed, mm. the political situation had changed. After all, the basis of the nationalist pitch uh, for joining the British army in 1914 is not just about small nations it's about uh, getting home rule ultimately now to some extent that's scuppered by the unionists saying the same thing you know join the British army and stop home rule so you come home if you're one of those who's believed the nationalist leadership that if you join the british army you'll get home rule and manifestly you have not got home rule it's, there's no sign of it being implemented um also there's been a a radicalization of opinion so people who were once moderate nationalists have now become republicans and actually now think do you know what home rule devolution within the uk is that what we really want and opinion has changed after the, uh, after the rising. Uh, so there is, a, there is a different political situation on the ground which makes a more radical um, political goal, some, something that more people want, and people are willing to use violence to get there because they've they've seen all else fail before. They've fought for four or five years and haven't got home rule. Um, The Irish Parliamentary Party has fallen apart. Sinn Féin has broken through in the 1918 election. Uh, Now, I know there's a debate about how far people really wanted a full-blown Sinn Féin agenda when they when they voted for them, but nevertheless they did vote for them yes. and, they, and they didn't vote for the Irish Parliamentary Party, which was seen to be weak. So the, the ground has shifted. So on the one hand, I think you can see the two as consistent, but I just also think that um, there's, there's been a change, there's been a huge change because of the war, because of what the British have done uh, to the leaders of the Rising and, and how that's been reacted to by the irish population also things like the conscription the anti-conscription campaign just makes people feel that maybe this this united kingdom which they were once happy to be a devolved part of is no longer anything they want to be a full part of
1: and you you mention in the book as well in the preface to the book and this is something that you talk about keith jeffrey who was a professor uh who's dead now but he he, he spoke about the idea that the Easter Rising and the War of Independence, etc. They grew out of the First World War. You can't really, uh, you can't really um, consider one without the other. Whereas we have sometimes been brought up in this country to believe that the Easter Rising really was only, it was just coincidental that it was mm. happened in the First World War and that the War of Independence happened. But you believe they're all part of a, sort of a seamless whole. Well, I the think rise.
2: there's no doubt when you look at, uh, if you look, for example, at writings of people like. Uh, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington in 1914 and 15. There's this view that the war has actually put back the chances of any kind of um, Irish independence of any form, because it, it's just led people to be tub thumping loyalists. And uh, you, you see these concerns expressed by Republicans, for example, during uh, during royal visits prior to the. Prior to the First World War, in the 10 or 15 years before, um, and I think when you look at uh, what somebody like Pierce is thinking in 1516, they think they've got to do something to change people's attitudes. It's not that they feel that um, the war has made, the, has made Ireland ripe for revolution, in terms of people are coming over. They think something the needs officers, to be yeah. done yeah. to make it right for re- revolution. So to that extent, uh, you know, do, do you, imagine the war doesn't break out in 1914 in the way that it does. Imagine the UK stays outside it. Um, you, pro- you have a very different conflict. I don't think you very obviously have the rising in 1916. You have some kind of more violent conflict perhaps. People talk about Ireland being on the brink of civil war in in 1914. Had Home Rule been introduced, some kind of conflict between the Irish Volunteers and the uh, and the Ulster Volunteer Force. It's very difficult to imagine the uh, the rising happening in the way that it did without the war breaking out. So it seems to me that the, that the two are um, are quite linked, and it's also. Uh, even if the two were quite separate, they are happening at the same time. And why you would privilege the story of the Easter Rising, which involves far fewer people than the First World War, over the major event of the times, so if you're interested in the history of Dublin at this time, I don't fully understand. So obviously people will have contemporary political interests and their own interests in one or the other. But if you're thinking about Dublin's history in 1916, then the First World War is it, it needs to be part of that narrative alongside the Easter Rising.
1: Um, you talk about... Uh, we'll take some questions from the floor in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you about... Um, just talk us through some of the really bad days in the First World War. You you, you, you you talk about them in the book. Days in the First World War when nearly 100 men from this city were killed. Yes. Are uh, you so... talking about... So the first day of the Battle of the Somme. That's
2: right. I mean, the, 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 worst, um, the worst year, first of all, is 1916. I'm just looking at some figures here. 1,656 dead. But the worst month is May 1915. Um, now, why is that? 387 dead in May 1915. And it's principally the Second Battle of Ypres, which we we just never talk about. Yeah. We, we hear about 3rd Ypres a lot, um, uh, Passchendaele, and we hear about 1st uh, Eap as well, but 2nd Ypres is, is rather forgotten. and uh, But it's also due to Gallipoli. One other month um, saw 300 deaths, September 1916. Of course, that's when oh, the yeah. 16th Division is, is on the Somme. But the worst... Single day of the war for Dublin, and it might surprise people, is the 1st of July 1916. It's the first day of the Battle of the Somme. 116 Dubliners lost their lives that day and 111 are on the Somme. Now why is that? It's partly because of Dubliners in the Ulster Division, but it's also Dubliners serving in the regular battalions yes, the first and that, the that are, in, that are in, in, involved. Yeah. So um, I suppose one other data Pick out is the other day on which losses reach 100, and that's the 21st of March 1918, the German Spring Offensive. Something that went re- went by relatively unmarked um, in the in the centenary events. I mean, it's a it, it's an amazing feat by the Germans to p- push back Allied forces in quite the the way they did. But that's that's the, that's the other day on which losses for Dublin has reached over 100. So, you know, 1916, the worst year, May 1915, the worst month, Um, and the two worst days, 1st of July 16 and 21st of March 1918. It's an astonishing amount of deaths when you think, you know, for
1: instance, when we think about the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, I think it was 34 people were killed, and and the emphasis is that's on that, and rightly so. But you see, you know, in some days there was three times as many people from this city killed uh, it's it's extraordinary we're we'll going to take some questions from the floor now uh does anybody Tara? does anybody have a microphone
2: yes uh questions or comments really isn't it questions well. or comments
1: of course yes uh, anybody anybody got any, any questions or comments this gentleman here Sorry, yeah.
0: just, just wait to get we'll the just, we'll get the microphone
3: <laughs> Hello. Uh, I'd just like to say that I was Emmett Dalton's caddy when he was golfing <laughs> in Her Ir- Dage and Lucan. Wonderful. And my brother caddied for him for about 10 years before that. And one of the things that I'd comment on is, <coughs> is that the animosity towards ex-British servicemen lasted a long time. Um, for example, Emmett had guard of security around with him. When he'd come into the, the golf club, I'm talking about the 40s here now, during the period of Second World War, uh, a car would arrive before his car and park and he'd park behind it. There was two detectives who would walk around the golf course with him. Now, this was being laid on by De Valera, who was on the other side. So he's been rather kind to somebody who was on the opposite side of the Civil War. My father was a Dublin Fusilier, and in the 50s and into the 60s when they would march from uh, O'Connell's Bridge to, uh, to down to Isle Bridge yeah. uh, they would be stoned. So the animosity lasted through the 30s, 40s and early 50s. Thank you.
2: I was, hold, hold on to them. I was just wondering, do, do you know if Emmet Dalton played golf when he lived in Radlett, and if so, where? Because <laughs> I, I have played some courses around there. I would, li- I would like to go and walk in his footsteps. You must
3: understand, I was a caddy.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he didn't ever talk about, oh, that was a... We were,
3: most of the time, we were in our bare feet. Yeah. Uh, he was a scratch golfer. Wow. He was a superb golfer. Uh, he would have a been, been talented, an international class golfer. Uh, he invented a competition in the Hermitage, which is still being played. He was secretary of the club. He won many, many. Uh, he would have been almost famous alone for his golf, never mind his military service.
2: He could have been a sort of Irish <clears throat> James Bond. Could he? Yeah, he could have been. If, if you don't mind, afterwards. Can we take a photo? I'd love to have a photo with Emmett Dalton's caddy. It's just... A fast incredible. Just, what's your name about... Um... <laughs> Sorry?
0: Yeah, um...
1: Just one other thing. I'm just yeah. wondering as well if, if, if security has got to do with his role in the Civil War as well, rather than just the... Because he was very prominent... If you, if, you, if you
3: think of what he did to the IRA in Cork yeah, when he yeah. put the troops on the, uh, the yeah. ships and came in from yeah. the sea and they were, they were defending Cork in a mad way, not thinking about his genius as a, a military commander. So there was a hell of a lot of animosity towards yeah, him exactly. from the uh, Devalier side.
2: Okay. And this, of course, is going to be... This is going to be so interesting in the next few years with how all of this is commemorated, because um, I think there was this... Few, I've been on the uh, Northern Ireland Centenary Committee, um, which has just dealt with First World War matters, um, being the type of group it is, you know, not, for example, centenary rising events. And there's, there's been a sense of uh, walking on eggshells to some extent, but there's been very close engagement between uh, people who... Are involved in the, the theoretical Northern Ireland Assembly and also the Irish government, um, but I and it's been very well choreographed. Um, choreographed by angels is a phrase that somebody used. Um, might have been, might have been the president, current president actually. But anyway, seeing how this develops in the, in the next five years or so is is going to be really, really interesting, and, and what it brings out, what sort of old local animosities and that kind of thing.
1: I think it is. I mean, we talk about the War of Independence here and the Civil War, but to me, centenary of the Government of Ireland Act 1920 and the foundation of the Northern Ireland Parliament, and I think it's about May 1921, how that's going to be marked is going to be extremely difficult, given the sensitivities that we have nowadays with Brexit, et cetera. Uh,
2: yeah, well, there's <laughs> another...
1: <laughs> we'll not mention who, the war. Who knows this, what that's going to lead to.
2: This gentleman here.
0: say
2: second, we'll get a microphone there's, it's just coming.
0: <clears throat> Thanks very much. Uh, my great grandfather was a, a member of the Kylies in Yorkshire, King's Own Yorkshire Infantry. And he retired to Dublin in 1912 and then joined the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, Fusiliers in 1914 when the war broke out. spent four years on the Western Front. My father, who's still alive, often talks about accompanying him on the uh, commemorative uh, uh, events out in Island Bridge. When he was young he used to uh, walk out. My his grandfather would be wearing his his, his medals and uh, so uh, yeah no it's interesting it's interesting to hear the other person say talking about the stoning my my dad has never mentioned any of that mm-hmm. he was he but was, I think
2: I mean you do certainly hear the stories I think what's interesting of course is there's there's hostility but it carries on you know and it, it's not such that uh, the events can't take place um, and the events in the in the twenties are massive the, there's a picture I have in the book of the stone cross that would go to Guymore, um being uh, temporarily located at College Green 1924 and uh, there, the crowds are of thousands that are there and, and they are through the 20s actually um, so it, it, it still happens, it's a, it's a conflict but it, it happens Just here
0: Did Mr. McCabe get his pension? Yes, oh.
2: yes, yes, he did. Uh, Actually, and I um, I, I, what I was trying to work out unsuccessfully uh, was whether he was also getting a British one at the same time. It's right something time. I
1: often wonder myself to Tom Barry, because he had spent years trying to get a military pension from the uh, IRA. Pent- I wonder, did they get the British That's Army good pension? That's uh, a uh, Why wouldn't they? I, mean, I think you know. he
2: would... Well. I mean, the sort of thing that would happen would—they wouldn't get medals. They wouldn't get the British medals, even even if they they claimed for them. But some of them did. I mean, Peter Goff, for example, uh, this this who was um, another Dubliner who was with uh, Dalton on the, on the um, on the Mountjoy raid and was also with Dalton uh, when Collins was killed. Uh, Peter Goff applied in the 1930s for a certificate of good service for the british government now this is interesting because gough was living in dublin now why do people have these certificates of good service well it it would help you get work Uh, he was a former ira man but he came to the conclusion at some point in the 1930s that it would be not his ira service but his british army service that would help him in some way Guinness, perhaps. I, you know, some yeah, employer, some place. employer like that. But he he applied he applied for that, and they he got it because um they didn't know he'd been in the ira <laughs> But it it would have it would have blocked that. It's extraordinary. There's now one there's at a the little uh, somebody at, one the back at the back. Then? Yeah. <clears throat> Just uh Who's going to get there first? What are we doing well, we do for we'll time, time do where are we?
0: Uh, yeah, just uh, given your uh, involvement, you mentioned in the um, Northern Ireland commemoration um, activities, uh, just wonder what you thought of the lead up and the commemoration of 1916 here in terms of uh, people who lived in Northern Ireland, I suppose, particularly of a nationalist background. And from my observations, there are relatively little that would seem to have happened on the ground.
2: There was quite a lot in Belfast. Um, Tom Hartley, who's, been very, who's a, a Sinn Féin councillor in Belfast, former Lord Mayor of Belfast, who's been uh, very involved uh, in bridging between republicanism and First World War commemoration. Um, he was involved in a, in a lot of work in Belfast, a lot of historical walks, a lot of the uh, attention in Belfast was perhaps unsurprisingly focused on Winnie Carney, uh, who's in the GPO uh, with Connolly. Um, you know, her typewriter is, a, is an important artifact of the of the rising. Uh, she's an interesting figure because she later marries a uh, a man who'd been in the UVF. Um, so, their story is often used in Northern Ireland as a, um, a as a as a complicating narrative. You know, a bit like my crossovers, actually. Carney and her husband are, um, are used in that way. Um, I think inevitably, uh, as you would see here, that there is a particular approach to rising commemoration from some types of Republicans who want to argue that this is not a republic. <coughs> And they will, uh, they will com- therefore commemorate the uh, uh, the rising in certain ways. And those groups, you know, understandably as well, they don't want to be part of official commemoration because they want to do their own thing. They want to mark things in a in a certain way. The I have to say, the me- the, the media does not cover that kind of thing very often. Um, i didn 't see much of it covered in uh, well, you might not expect it to be covered in the Belfast Telegraph, but I think actually the Irish news was quite um, muted in its in its coverage of these kinds of events. If they do cover them it 's as historical commemorations they 're often loath to cover the the politics of it. Um, does that tackle the things you were getting at
0: yeah, I think also. The commemorations here give very little recognition and acknowledgement that people who considered themselves Irish were also involved at the time. In the um,
2: in the British military, or
0: no, no, in 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 being part of the the volunteers and who, who would have supported uh, the the, camp, uh, the rebellion in
2: 1916. Oh, I see. Um, I mean, my Ronan may have thoughts on this, but I, my my sense is that just observing you know, more from the outside. It, it seemed to me that the commemorations here uh, allowed a lot of space for different people to do different things. And of course, the, the commemorations in, in, in Easter 2016 were massive, weren't yeah. they? Um, so.
1: Yeah, I, 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 um, as I said to you at the start, I, I edited the book on centenary. Uh, and so I would have look back on everything that happened over the year. And it was a huge amount of stuff. There was thousands of events. But one of the things I made absolutely sure we had in the book was a significant representation from the north. And that wasn't difficult. I mean, there was a lot happened in the north. A lot of it happened under the radar of the southern media and and us here. But there was a great deal of, um, uh, of, of, of marking of it, both official and unofficial. You know, obviously, dissident Republicans would have a different view to the, about the Easter Rising being unfinished business, etc. Mm. But there was a lot happened in the North, and there was also, I think, quite a lot of cross-community commemorations as well, whereby people were given, like, for want of a better word, a safe space to discuss the Rising in a kind of neutral context and to discuss it in terms of the First World War as well. So uh, as far as I, I'm aware as well, I, I think the Rising was well commemorated in Ireland in 2016
2: in general. I thought there was probably not even probably there, I, I thought there was a missed opportunity uh, for unionists to have done a little bit more to to, to show yeah. some respect of the struggle and the old, I was making this argument back after the queen 's visit here in two thousand and eleven, and you know that, well, you all know that was that was such a significant moment, and I sort of made the point that well. Um, the, the Queen has now set a standard for taking part in these kind of commemorations and let's see what the group of people who think of themselves as her most loyal subjects will do about this. You know, Will they follow the Queen's lead? And I felt that more could have been done. Actually. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the
1: Ulster Unions did come to Dublin yeah. to discuss the rising and uh, um, Arlene Foster at the time turned up to an event but it wasn't supposed to be a commemoration. It was renamed... Something else, so that she didn't have to state that she had taken part in an Easter rising event. It was, it was, it was, it was a poor show, but mm. what do you expect, you know? Yeah, we're uh, we're running short on time here, I think. So, is there any, any other questions that we, yeah,
2: the gentlemen here? And one down the side as well. Yeah. Oh, we're taking that one first. Oh, we, I think we're going there first because oh. that's where the um, mic. We retire.
1: We're for time here. Can you can you give us? Okay.
0: just a quick one earlier in the discussion you touched on a point uh, which is hypothetical i know but you mentioned that uh, if the first world war had not broken out in 1914 if I understood you correctly, you refer to some potentially more bloody conflict might have occurred in Ireland. Can you elaborate just a little bit on that, Yeah, place? just very
2: briefly. I mean, I think at the very least that what would have happened in, in, in and around Belfast is that, is that Carson would have made some kind of unilateral declaration of independence. I think you would have. And now, whether that would have led to a civil war, as is... Frankly, most people say Ireland is on the brink of civil war because of the existence of the armies. I suspect you have some kind of armed armed standoff of, of some of some kind ultimately you know cura mutiny and all the rest of it you it's hard to see the british army based in ireland taking on the uvf which is ultimately what would have been necessary mm. uh, um, but but um yeah so i i think it's sort of udi with then what follows well who knows you know the the, the orders of engagement never survived the first encounter with the enemy so <laughs> how does it then turn out is a very difficult question i
1: think robert gray the, the the foreign secretary said at the start of the war that the one good thing about this dreadful Not conflict was was ireland yeah. and you know there is what would have happened i mean you, you could have had the british army actually marching against the uvf and then and then you know the irish volunteers would have got involved themselves and you would have a three-way fight yeah. and it would have been. Yeah. It would have been bloody... And
2: great. possibly the Irish Volunteers on the same side of the British Army. Which you know, that's the irony of it. Yes, That's the, irony of, yes, it. It that's is, the yeah. irony of it. But then, yeah. you know, of course, the Unionists have always had this view that you, well, you can't trust the English, you know, to, to, to preserve the Union. Um, Boris Johnson. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I say no more. <laughs> yeah. yeah, some things never change. Yeah. Anybody else? <laughs> There's, uh, Matt, uh, yeah, just in there.
3: Uh, just a comment to balance up what you were saying there about the guy having so much difficulty getting his pension i was a pension officer in the 70s and i was still uh, going out annually in the in rural ireland to check out that their means hadn't changed ah, right yeah but what people won't know is that there was an unwritten rule among ourselves that we never changed the means test hmm. Over, even if over a 10-year period, it was frozen okay. to the day of application. Mm. So they did get it.
2: Well, the British War Office was obviously taking a different view. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but just on one last thing I'd say about that, there's, there's, a, there's a guy in the UK, uh, Michael Robinson, is his name, is doing research on the extent to which uh, the British Army paid pensions. The British government paid uh, uh, army pensions in Ireland, and it's extraordinary. I mean, they were um, contributing at least 100 million euros in today's money to a very impoverished economy at the time. And a lot of, one of the things I, I read, he said that a lot of TDs uh, were actually lobbying on behalf of, of ex-British soldiers and said, well, look, you know, they took everything from us for long enough. Let's just take it off them. And, this, and it was always... And, and the british army pension was regarded as being very generous and compared the, a, to the, the army.
2: average rate um paid here is significantly higher yeah. than the average rate in england but there's some more digging needs to be done on this there's some thought that that's because in the absence of conscription um on average irish soldiers joined up earlier than than the english ones you know so they would have had a longer pension
1: okay, okay well uh, i think that's all so um uh, uh, thank you very thank much, you. all, for coming. It's a great crowd. We're delighted. Well.
0: Thank you to Richard as well for, uh, for a very important. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. If you'd like to subscribe, you'll find all the information you need at DublinFestivalOfHistory.ie, and we're also on Twitter at HistFest.